Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is a story I remember from, like, middle school, elementary school. Um, I don't remember the details, but uh, so it's like a woman comes home. And uh, it's late at night, and, and, and her dog's, like, laying there on the ground, and it's choking and everything. And she's freaking out, so she calls 911, you know, like, what do I do here? And she starts, like, giving the dog CPR, and, and the dog cuts a, a bloody finger. And, and she's telling the 911, like, get out of the house, get out of the house now. And so she gets out of the house, and the cops come, and there's, like, a guy passed out in the closet. He'd broken the house, and the dog bit off his finger. It doesn't. Have you heard the story of and written on the wall? And and everyone blood. has the different stories of oh, this happened to my brother. This they start telling you stories of the old. Country. There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello, and welcome to the Just a Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories we tell over and over again, what our myths and misdeeds, fears and fables say about us as humans. We want to take a minute, as we always do, to thank all of our listeners. We'd like to encourage all of you to reach out to us on Twitter at JustAStoryPod. You can email us at JustAStoryPod at gmail.com. Or, should you feel so inclined, you can call the Just a Story hotline. And that can be done by simply dialing our number and confessing all of your deepest secrets to a voicemail box. Just, you know, talking about stories you grew up with. That's probably a more practical usage of the Just a Story hotline. If you'd like to confess to any crimes, I suggest you call the police department, which is handling the investigation. But if you want to call the Just a Story hotline, the number is 512-222-3375. So, Sam, I have brought our mic out today. Notice I say today. It's the daytime, folks. It's weird. And the sun is out. Because we've been doing a lot of really like dark, depressing topics. I'm just kind of sad. Yeah. I mean, the therapy bills have doubled. But being the good little soldiers we are, we wanted to keep going and keep telling you the truth behind the urban legends that surround us. And most of them are gloomy and dark and awful. So Sam, can you can you brighten my spirits as we sit out in the sunshine on this beautiful Texas day and give me a happy urban legend? Meh. How about a ridiculous urban legend? Yes. Okay. There was this young boy and his parents had gone on a vacation to Mexico to like renew their wedding vows or some shit and he was having no part of it. And he decided to stay home. But they felt bad because they were having so much fun without him. And they'd never heard of a house party or understood that their teenage son was probably having those. And they decided to pick up something nice for him while they were in Mexico to make up for, you know, not bringing him along. They were eating lunch and his dad threw his taco. And apparently a pack of like stray dogs came up and his mom spotted this little one. It was just the cutest thing she'd ever seen. And so they, they like smuggled the dog back to America and they present it to their son And they, like, wash him, and they give him dog food. But then they get really worried, 
Because the next morning, the dog's like foaming at the mouth and they're like, it has rabies, run. And so they bring it to the vet and he's like, "Mm, this is not a dog. This is a sewer rat and it has rabies. Good job, folks. Yay. I feel so much happier now with rabid rats from Mexico. Actually, I I love the story. It's like my favorite stupid urban legend. (laughs) I like I hate it. I hate the story. I haven't wanted to do it because I'm like this is so absurd and ridiculous and there's no murder. <laughs> there's no murder. Although actually in some tellings of the story, the rat gets brought to the vet because he starts like attacking the other animals and they find a little buttercup dead <laughs> or they starts like biting the kid and that's why they bring him to the vet cuz he's just going to act crazy. So there's a little like violence. I'm just like I I know white people are stupid is like the general theme of this urban legend but is there anybody that is that waspy and that privileged and that shut in that they cannot recognize the difference between a sewer rat and a dog yes okay (laughs) this actually this has never happened this has never happened unfortunately it's just a story it's just a story but it is a super depressing little metaphor what's it a metaphor about well here i'll let you guess they take this thing from Mexico, and they smuggle it across the border, mm-hmm. and then it causes all sorts of problems in their nice little wasp family. No. Is this an immigration metaphor? Of course it is. Oh, yuck. I know I like it even less. Well, you know, not even really immigration, but, you know, the illegal sneaking across the border of all of these rapists that Donald Trump likes to talk about from like Mexico or other countries into the United States to come and destroy our country. Okay, yeah, and it's like a stray that just needs help and they try to help it and it turns on them because of its very nature. Right. God, this is so racist. Oh, 100%. Yuck. Well, you know, and as the story started to like grow and change as all of these urban legends do, it started in the 80s and as it, you know, it started here-ish, is on these kind of border towns, oh, you border mean in states. Texas. Yeah. Oh, okay. Anyway. Sometimes it's in Texas, sometimes it's in California. These are kind of border states of Mexico. Mm-hmm. And as it spread to other states, you know, they would change. So, you know, if it would be in Florida, it would be like Cuba or, you know, just things like that. It would be different sorts of uh, immigrants or like other boat people and things like that. Okay. Other boat people? Boat people. What is boat people? People that come over on boats, like from Cuba. Oh, like, uh, okay. Like my friend's family, were, they were technically like boat people. That's what she called them. <laughs> like they came over from Vietnam. Like okay. her parents came over during the Vietnam War. Okay. So I like that the racism is ubiquitous enough that it can remain ambiguous and be applicable to whatever xenophobic tendencies people in your area have. That's the beauty of folklore, folks. That's right. We can make everything racist. Yay! Okay, so aside from racism, I think one of the more interesting things in this legend is the dog. You know, it's well known that if you have a bit with a dog, it's more lovable. Like W.C. Fields says, never work with children or animals. Because everybody loves a dog. There are a lot of dogs that have been really well-loved in fiction and real life forever. And what I love about this is, like... The only way that this can be believable is that there exists a dog in the world that is so ugly and ridiculous that it could be mistaken for a rat. And I think that the most likely candidate for this is the Chihuahua. Right, that is what the 
the thought is. You know, they thought it was a chihuahua, a Mexican hairless dog, and that's what they thought it was. Yeah. But even these, like, ugly dogs. I don't think chihuahuas are even particularly ugly. They're a little ridiculous, but they're not ugly. Yeah, and we can say because we have a ridiculous dog We as do. Well. Yes, we do. It's not a chihuahua. He's a dachshund. Yes. A dachshund. <laughs> even these, like, really weird, odd dogs that we can just love, there's this place in our heart. And that's because humanity has evolved with dogs for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, as well as dogs have evolved with humans. So we're, we're like co-evolution buddies. We really are. I spoke about this Russian scientist before, uh, Dmitry Belyev, who did this research with foxes. Mm-hmm. And he selectively bred foxes down to, to make them more tame. Okay. And so as he made them more tame, selectively breeding them for that... The foxes started to get specific characteristics. That were more, and here's the big scientific word for you all, puppy-like. Yeah, or cute. (laughs) And so they would have different coat colors. They would have floppy ears, Mm -hmm. curly tails. Mm -hmm. Because no animals in nature have floppy ears except for the elephant. Bunny rabbits. Mm, Those are bred. Just think of a jackrabbit. Oh, they don't have floppy ears at all. Right. I learned that from one of our kids' books. <laughs> Yay, parenting. Always an adventure. And then you have to pretend like you already knew it. Oh, you can't let them know you, that you don't know anything. That's the object of the game of parenting. Yeah, and so all of Belia's foxes had these qualities that you would see in dogs, but not in wolves. And also, by making them have these longer puppy-like states... They would have a longer primary socialization period where they would become more closely bonded with humans. Okay. So think of like in Twilight. What? You know. No. Jacob. Oh, the imprinting? Yeah. Okay. Kind of like that. I'm so ashamed that you've read all those books and then handed them to me and said, this is crack. It's terrible. (laughs) Hate read it. Hate read it and then let's bitch. I I love to hate read and hate watch things. Yeah, we hate read that. But anyway, so... Because they kind of retain their puppy-like state for longer, that gives humans a longer window to establish blind loyalty in their animal companions. Right, establish that pack of behavior. Okay. You know, there's some really interesting thoughts on, you know, how did this happen? Did we make dogs like that, or did dogs become like that naturally? And the pendulum swings both ways with time. Nature nurture argument all over again in canine form. Well, it's all it's all nature in a way. Okay. But it's who caused the nature. Okay, so whether or not we were agents of change. Right. Is it kind of an artificial selection or natural selection? Okay. And right now the pendulum is swinging towards natural selection as the starting point. Oh, really? Yeah, and so whenever we were out hunting and gathering, the wolves would follow our groups around and eat our leftovers, eat on the carcasses that we left, and started to develop more traits that would allow them to be around humans. So if they, I have to say, if you're a wolf, that's a pretty sweet gig. It really is. So yeah. That's why they did it. Yeah, and so the dogs that were the best at it, like the ones that were not killed because they ate the elderly or whatever, are the ones that survived to continue following and eating carcasses. So they naturally selected for more domestic demeanors. Right. If you could stand being around humans, which good job, wolves. Yeah, because I'm not totally doing a great job of that myself. That's why your ears aren't floppy. I know. You don't have a curly tail. I do not. But all dogs 
are descended from the gray wolf, Canis lupus. There's been a lot of genetic research about this recently. And there's even some thoughts that this may have happened more than one time in different parts of the world. Okay, Because there are examples of dogs in the Americas and in, you know, Euro-Asia. But it was thought until really recently when we started doing DNA research that we started having the kind of modern iteration of dogs where they aren't completely wild about 12, 15,000 years ago. Okay, so that's a fair minute. Yeah, that's when they started seeing the remains of dogs with, you know, like buried or in human sites and things like that. Like, that were not without humans in their bellies, I guess. <laughs> yeah, right. A famous archaeological find is a 14,000-year-old remains of a puppy and an elderly person found buried together in Israel. Aww. And the person's hand was on the dog's flank. Oh, reducing stress. Yeah, or it was like just an accident. <laughs> we're just reading way into it. It's a nice accident. It's so much better than a lot of things we find that are like, people were actually killing each other until the moment they died. They've, Of course, science comes about. Hard science. And we look at DNA. Mm-hmm. And this was just came out like last year. What they did was they took a bone from a what they thought was a dog in Siberia. Had really dog-like characteristics. Mm-hmm. And they compared that DNA to wolves and to modern dogs. Okay. And they were able to tag that the split was probably more like 27,000 years ago. So that's not necessarily when we started having dogs in our everyday sphere, like as hunting dogs and stuff. But they were there as followers of the least. So it really is more like dogs domesticated themselves. Because they needed to continue their symbiotic relationship with nomadic people? Yeah, definitely. Okay, all makes sense. I'm following science things. But, you know, we're human. Yeah. We have to start meddling. Yeah, that's what we're best at. And so that's whenever we started to have some artificial selection, and we did start breeding dogs for different purposes. So, specialized dogs. Yes. So, let's go back. I said that I thought this myth was probably about, like, a chihuahua. Yeah, most likely. So, what are chihuahuas for? The original use of chihuahua is still, you know, questionable. But we know that it probably is from Mexico. Mm-hmm. And it's been around for thousands of years. Okay. And it was most likely a companion dog. So, just friends. Yeah, and they even found similar dogs like in the Great Pyramids of Kula. So companion dogs have been a thing for a, a long time. Oh yeah. yeah, like in China, they had the pug dogs. Came over to Europe because everyone snorting thought they were just so all cool. The way. And I don't know snorting, why. I know. Snort, 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 snort. Have you ever heard a pug sleep? It's that the, every breath sounds pained. Apparently, some people find that charming, and they brought them to I think Britain specifically, right? Like, well, all through it was popular throughout Europe through, and Britain. Okay, yeah. But in Britain, there was a dog of a, a more noble purpose, perhaps the bulldog Churchill. Winston Churchill. Yes, he was a bulldog. True fact. Historical records will agree. Winston Churchill was in fact a bulldog. DNA analysis Confirmed. proves yes. yes, yes, without a shadow of a doubt, that's true. Okay, no, that's not true. Don't do not write that on your history paper. Stop, stop it. Stop. Do not cite me as a source on this. Okay, stop you can it. cite me. <laughs> Don't listen to him. It's not true. But the bulldog was very popular, and it was used in bull baiting. They would set dogs onto a tethered bull. And, you know, there's gambling involved, as there so often is in animal cruelty. And they'd grab the bull by its nose and pull it to the ground. Whoever would pin the bull down won. And so if your dog, Churchill. Winston Churchill pinned the bull down, you won. You won like 10. Six pence. Yeah. Or whatever. (laughs) Okay. In a pocket full of rye. And they were very popular in like 
the 1800s. Animal cruelty element, the fighting of the bull and the dog was kind of done away with, outlawed. And then they mixed with the pug, the charming snorty snort dog, and became more docile. Yeah, because the bulldog... The original English bulldog, you know, had some of the similar features. It had like the big head, big jaw, stocky, low build, had that flat face and the wrinkles so that the bull couldn't get it. And the blood wouldn't get in its eyes. Right. Which I think is just like, oh, well, we need to make sure that happens. Good job, guys. And so other dogs with bull name in them had similar jobs like pit bulls and things like that. Mm -hmm. Bull mastiffs. Yes. So they became a little less ferocious over time. And now they are the docile skateboarding breed that we all love today. Oh, definitely. Gotta love that dog. (laughs) Okay, now I'm happy. I'm thinking of the skateboarding bulldog. Google it. Pause. Go Google it. (laughs) There's one dog that was this ferocious beast that man had created. Kind of lost its job. Poor guy. Yeah. And got bred down to just a more docile friendly dog right so any other dogs that that happened to well our dog fritz yes okay fritz comes from a mighty line of badger hunters dachshunds were bred to hunt badgers like dachshund dachshund yes means means badger badger dog dog. yes and they were bred to be long and thin with elastic but tough skin and so that they could go into burrows after badgers and even their tails, like the, the way that their tails are thicker at the base and very sturdy, is believed to have been a feature that was bred in so that owners could grab them by the tail and pull them out if they ever got stuck, which I think is hilarious. <laughs> and more Googling, you, they actually do this now, do like competitions, I think with fake, you know, fake badgers. And you can watch them go and hunting. <laughs> it's very entertaining. Right. And we do have to remember, like as funny as this is in my mind to imagine my little dog doing this, who's like basically now... He's basically cylindrical, and he has just expanded to the point where he's really kind of a hot dog shape, like with the bun included, in his old age, and he's fat and grumpy. But anyway, when I think about him doing this, it's hilarious, but he's a miniature dachshund. So the original dachshund was even larger than the full size is now. So they're pretty big dogs, and that to me is very funny to imagine that our little grump came from this very useful dog. Actually, dachshunds have been companion dogs for a while. They were very popular at the turn of the century. Right until World War One, when there, a rash of anti-German sentiment broke out in America. And since the dogs were so heavily associated with German immigrants, packs of little dachshunds were stoned to death. It's so sad. I know. And like whenever they would do political cartoons, the dachshund always was like the stand-in for Germany. So mm-hmm. like you see some of Theodore Geisel's old political cartoons. And it's a dachshund, like dachshund Hitler. <laughs> yeah, well, well, it wasn't Hitler yet. It was one. So he'd have the little hat with uh-huh. the spike. Oh. The Austro-Hungarian Empire yeah. had, you know. But Theodore Geisel's Dr. Seuss. Mm. I'm sorry. I completely didn't make that connection. I'm so glad you cleared that up because that's even more delightful. So another dog that had a mighty fall from grace, if you will, was the Yorkie. Oh, those little yappy dogs? The yappy purse dogs, yes. The ones that usually wear the bow and have the long hair and weigh like seven pounds. So they were originally bred by Scottish miners who were going into big underground mines. And they would send the little dogs in to clear out the rats before they went down. Oh, so useful. Very useful and like vicious. And now they yip. My favorite dog that lost his job, although they still are used sometimes, but not nearly as much, is the poodle. 
I love the poodle. I want a full-size poodle. Because everyone thinks of that, like, shaved dog, little balls. This is prissy little they dog. They look very fussy. Yeah, like... It, but they're not. That, no. that was done because they were water hunting dogs. And it was to protect their joint and their vital organs uh, from the cold water. And even the bow. Even the bow that poodles wear has a purpose. Had a purpose. Because... The poodle was a very common hunting dog, as if a group of people were out hunting together and each had their poodle. They could track whose poodle got the game by following the certain color bow. So like, oh, don't steal my poodle. <laughs> that That's the pink bow. The poodle with the pink bow has it. That must be my game. They've been around forever. There are Roman coins from like 100 BC that show dogs with similar shaving patterns to a poodle um, that would have been used in a similar way. So It's a very old tradition. Yes. And you also have to think of a full-size poodle as this big-ass dog. No, the full-size poodle does still very much exist. And they, they some people do hunt with them. I'm not yes. saying they never are. But the majority of the time, if you see a poodle, it's a toy poodle named Fifi. And she's a bitch, and she will bite you if you look at her wrong. Your grandmother's dog will bite you. My do grandmother not. did have a toy poodle. Okay, I was joking. <laughs> and, and a chihuahua. Oh, God. What were their names? Do you remember? No, but I think she did get the chihuahua from Mexico. Okay, and one of my personal favorites in the Dog Fall from Grace Hall of Fame is the Pomeranian. The Pomeranian? Yes. The little poof dog. I like a dog with volume, yes. It has a lot of volume. It does. It is a voluminous dog, and it's a, a member of the Spitz family. Oh, this is, okay. So Spitz, like sled dogs. And it was called the Wolf Spitz. Someone called the Pomeranian a Wolf Spitz. <laughs> yes, and it means sharp point. And they would have been popular in an area known as Pomerania, which was in modern-day Poland. And they were originally giant sled dogs. Like how big? Like as big as Huskies. Oh, wow. Yeah, and they were bred down for size over time. And so the volume was for, like, warmth. Yeah. When were they bred down? Uh, they were most popular in the 16th century as sled dogs. And over time, around the 19th century, they started getting smaller. And smaller and smaller until they are the fun size that we know today. Yeah, it seems like in the 19th century is when a lot of dog breeding occurred. It's when all those like roots were developed and the different mm-hmm. breeds of dogs. You mean dog. like working group, yes. herding group. Yeah, like what you see on the one dog show you watch accidentally after the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade every year. If you're me. It's not really an accident. And then the Airedale Terrier which is also called the monkey dog, was bred to fight, like, mountain lions. And now it doesn't. And they also got smaller. And the Lhasa Apsa? Do you know what a Lhasa Apsa looks like? It looks kind of like a goat. Exactly. Well, that was bred for. It was a guardian of Chinese temples and palaces. Those traits were bred in to make it look more goat-like. Why would you want a dog that I, looks like... I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure there is meaning. Yeah, we should have looked into that. Oh, so these poor dogs fallen from grace. Uh, I want a pack of, like, 50 Pomeranians to pull me on a sled. Well, now you know what I dream about. Actually, my dog fantasy. You want to know my dog fantasy? Of course. I want to be an old woman sitting on the front of my house, on my front porch, in a rocking chair, drinking sweet tea, may or may not have trace amounts of vodka in it, with my two giant bloodhounds named Tecumseh and Watasha. Keep dreaming, baby. I think it's a great plan. I think it's an attainable dream. I think so, too. I just, I I love this vision of myself. That, to me, is, like, how I will be as an old woman. Even though these dogs have kind of lost their jobs and they're out of work, they were adaptable. People liked the qualities that the dogs had enough to, you know, find a way to preserve the good qualities and keep the breed around, even if they shrunk it or domesticated it or put it in a purse. But there was one dog whose job went away, and because it was a 
disagreeable, morose little mongrel, as several reports I've read have stated. The dog went with the job. I can think of a morose little mongrel in my house right now. Yeah, it made me think of Fritz, too. We really don't hate our dog. It sounds like we do. So what was this dog? It was called the turnspit dog. What does that mean? Like a turnspit? Like what you cook something on? Yes, like a spit. Like a, And it was in charge of turning it. Just like... Like, grab it with its teeth and just turn the pig over the fire? If this were a Disney cartoon, yes. But life is not a Disney cartoon. Lies. Lies. Okay, so this dog was mounted in a hamster wheel type contraption that was put high up on a wall near a giant flame where they would have meat of various and sundry sorts roasting on a spit. And the spit was attached to a mechanism that would turn as the dog ran. They would put hot coals in the spit to make the dog run faster. Um, no wonder he was angry. Yeah. They were throwing hot coals at him going, faster, faster. Yes. So they were long and skinny, kind of like a dachshund, kind of shaped like a dachshund, and had heavy heads and crooked front legs. And they were first recorded around 1576 is kind of the first mention of them. And William Shakespeare mentions them in one of his plays. And Darwin actually said, look at the spit dog. That is an example of how people can breed animals to suit particular needs. So Darwin, who's kind of an expert on breeding, saw this as a prime example. Yeah, and Darwin actually did mention dogs a lot because there was so much variety in them. Mm -hmm. They had so many different traits that you could look at. He was kind of wrong in one aspect because he said that there must have been a ton of different animals these came from to get all of these different traits. But that's not what we've kind of talked about happening. Right, It's uh, everything is from just this one dog, which in actuality, completely supports his theories. Right, but his own common sense got in the way of his understanding. Yeah, that happens sometimes. Yeah, he outsmarted himself. (laughs) One of my favorite factoids about the turnspit dog is that it was also called the vernipater cur. That's tongue twister. Yes, and it was Latin for the dog that turns the wheel. Very literal. It's like Latin scientific name is Canis verticus, which means dizzy dog. I like that better. Because it was turning the wheel too much. And also, as they became extinct and became fewer and fewer, there was one preserved by a taxidermist that's still on display at a large estate in London. Hey, Sam, what do you like to Google whenever you're having a bad day? Bad taxidermy. I literally thought that's what you were doing the other day when you were reading about this. Yeah, you were like, you're supposed to be researching. I was like, I am, I swear. My day hasn't even been that bad. So yeah, the Vernipater Kerr basically became extinct with the invention of something called a clock jack, which was a mechanical replacement for the dog. Was it like a little mechanical dog that ran? Yes. No, it was not. It was just... That's disappointing. (laughs) I know. I I agree completely and totally. It became a mark of poverty or like not being as good as everyone else to have a dog instead of a mechanism. But we do still have some dogs that are being used the way they were meant to be used. I mean, obviously, think of, like, hunting dogs. Okay, yeah. Or herding dogs. Mm-hmm. And you can think of obvious ones for that. Sheep dogs. Yes. Like Labradors. For hunting. But other dogs, they've taken those hunting prowess that they have and the abilities that have been bred into them and use them for other things. It's like a human resources powwow happens and they're like, you know who would be good for this job? And they look at the dog's old resumes and find them. Sure. I mean, like, I'm thinking this from a staffing 
point of view, right? Like, so say you have an opening for a dog who runs fast and is very dedicated and is easily motivated. And if we run these dogs around a track, people can bet on them and we can make money. So you'd go back and like look for dogs that were really fast and took orders really well. Yeah, and you'd find Greyhound. Okay, yes, Greyhound. Now, interestingly, Greyhounds are one of the longest-running dog breeds in our history. So there are depictions of them like on the tombs of pharaohs. Greek gods were known to have dogs that are very similar to the modern Greyhound. And they were mentioned in the Odyssey. So up to about 2,000 years ago. I mean, they're in, they're in Sumerian writing and mosaics and things. Really been around for a fair while. And of course, you always have like the mummified animals. Mm-hmm. And so we know there were dogs in Egypt. And in Roman law, it was noted that no farm should be without two dogs to protect the farm. And it was better to have a white dog than a black dog because the dogs were supposed to be kept indoors during the day and were free to roam at night in order to protect the farm. And there was some concern that if you had a black dog, it could be mistaken for a wolf in the early twilight hours or at night. Oh, so that distinction between dog and wolf Mm -hmm. thousands of years ago. And then in Mesoamerica, their kind of version of Prometheus, like the divine being that brought fire to mankind, was a dog. And then also in that area, the Mayans believe that dogs were responsible for getting rid of the first race of people that the gods made that displeased them, that they were like, oh, we're going to need a do-over. This was a mistake. Yeah, it is so interesting that separate mythologies always had this, like, oh, we screwed up, let's kill them all. Yeah, that always works out real well. I mean, the flood got everybody except, you know, the people whose descendants are here now, so they were batting a thousand on that clearing out process. Good job. Good job, guys. Okay, so dogs have been our buddies for a really long time. We probably don't have the same set of myths and beliefs and practices associated with dogs that used to have but we do have a few dogs who we still really elevate in our society that are still very practical and very important yeah like like police dogs police dogs are actually exactly what i was thinking of rin tin tin we're gonna do the rest of the episode about him does anybody remember rin tin tin nope okay what about uh mcgruff the crime dog the one that wore an overcoat yes he's very important to society you know he's doing community service for being a flasher right God, why? (laughs) Because I'm building new urban legends. (laughs) Well, thank you. So, actually, I was joking and being silly, but German shepherds like Rin Tin Tin and bloodhounds like McGruff are two of the dogs that we still use today to do very important jobs. So, I always think uh, when I was a kid, they'd bring the German shepherds in, you know, by the police to show the kids, and I was always fascinated that they only took commands in German. Okay, I did not know that that was all of them. I thought that was just like this really clever thing the guy who brought his German Shepherd to my school had figured out. I think it is all of them, or at least most of them. It's so that, you know, someone else can't say it. I think it's part of the Fourth Reich's plan to take over the American police forces. They're going to command all the dogs because they all speak German, and then there's going to be a dog uprising. That's probably right. Interestingly enough, the German Shepherd didn't start out as a police dog, as you might have guessed from his name. Was he a shepherding dog? Yeah, sort of. That was kind of his gig. And then the man who was responsible for sort of maintaining the breed standard and having the German Shepherds recognized as a formal dog breed sort of saw that the jig was up 
And he was like, you know, we should really find these guys a new gig if we want them to stick around. As society became more industrialized, he was like, eh, this whole pastoral life, there must be more than this provincial life, he said. And he gathered up his pack of German shepherds and took them into the city and gave them to law enforcement. And they were Red Cross dogs and they were police dogs and they just kind of started doing the whole public service shtick. Okay, well, that's really interesting that they went from herding sheep to being police dog. How about bloodhounds? Did they herd animals too? No, they were always pretty much used for tracking. But, so their name, just like German Shepherds, obvious, just like Turnspit Dogs, yeah. <laughs> obvious name choice. We're very literal with our dog naming. They were hounds that tracked blood or quarry. Right, well, bloodhounds were very well established when they could find the first possible writings about bloodhounds in 14th century England. People often claimed, and this is probably just a story, that they were brought over from Normandy by William the Conqueror. I'd buy that. Why not? It's possible. They were French dogs. Like they're, they were, they're, Their they're, tradition yes. goes back further in France. Yes. And at one point, the French even took bloodhounds and were like, no, these are the St. Helena dogs. We're going to restart this died out breed. Okay. So the French tried to take it back. Yep. They're like, we're taking this back. Mm-hmm. We don't like the name you've given them. It's yeah. too literal and British. They're going to need some pomp and circumstance. Yep. That sounds very right. I'm believing all of this. <laughs> But they were originally limer dogs, which means they were kept on a leash and they were used for hunting, but they were used to find the game. And then whenever they found it, then the other dogs would go and get it. And that's where you see like the pack hunting. Right. There are even stories in medieval Scotland of William Wallace being followed by sleuth dogs. Sleuth dogs, bloodhounds. That's what they think it probably was. A sleuth dog? That's yeah. so, that's better than Bloodhound, if you ask me. But, you know, I'm not going to go all French and try to rename them. Well, I think they've been wearing the little Sherlock hat. The deer hunter, yeah. deer stalker caps. <laughs> I mean, they're used because dogs have just an amazing sense of smell. Their olfactory senses are 40 times greater than human. And most dogs have 124 to 220 million olfactory receptors. Okay, so that's just the average dog. Right. Bloodhounds have nearly 300 million. Holy shit, that's a lot of smell. And then, of course, your favorite fact, the wrinkles. Oh, yeah. So this is a a twofold wrinkle fact, if you will. So the wrinkles around the dog's jowls and all that are used to preserve the scent molecules that they pick up when their noses are to the ground. And their ears are long and floppy in order to dust up the air when they're running with their noses down. Ah. Yeah. And it's supposedly like when they shake their head, it like wafts the scent into their nose wrinkles and they can hold on to it better. For all of our listeners at home, Sam just pantomimed the <laughs> entire thing. And I'm thinking we should have a YouTube channel instead. No. I'm, I'm not that good of an actress. I could never pull off Bloodhound convincingly. I'm not Anglo enough. The German Shepherd is a very intelligent dog. It learns commands very easily and is very responsive to commands and can be trained very well. The Bloodhound has a natural ability to scent. And those abilities and inbred characteristics make them useful even today. So within police forces today, there are a variety of different uses for trained dogs. Um, You might have seen the drug-sniffing dogs, if you're really lucky, 
or if you're really, really lucky, the bomb sniffing dogs. Or if you've like lost a person and need to find them, you might have seen bloodhounds in action. Or if you're even more lucky than all of that, you might have gotten the rare opportunity to see a cadaver dog at work. Postmortem. Yeah. Hopefully, a lot of people don't come into contact with dogs doing these jobs, but the cadaver dog is one that I've always found particularly interesting. So, Jacob, what's a cadaver? Dead body. Yes, but dead body dog just doesn't have the same ring to it, does it? It sounds so much less scientific. Right. It sounds more gruesome. The cadaver dogs are a group of highly trained dogs, and they can vary in breed. German Shepherds are used, along with Labrador Retrievers, and a variety. Even some mixed breed dogs have been trained as cadaver dogs. But it's a highly specialized training. They are able to pick out the scent of a human cadaver, human body parts, bones, etc. Underground, even under running water. And they're able to distinguish between the scents of human decomp and that of other animals. The only thing that ever throws them off is pigs. I wonder if that's because they were like trained to be boar hunters. Well, it's not bloodhounds usually. I think it's probably because our body composition is really similar to pigs. Oh, so maybe that's why dogs that have a breeding towards hunting things like pigs are so good at finding it. Right. So it's kind of the inverse. Right. Maybe so. It's very possible. But like, I know that in the book, No Stone Unturned, which is about Necrosearch International, which is an incredibly good book that I did not expect to be as good as it is, that I listened to and it's still one that I'm like, God, that was good every time I think about it. So Paul's going to read it. They discuss that when they were planning their experiments on uh, clandestine graves, they decided to use pigs. And they used to be called the pig people. And they would bury pigs and study the decomp of pigs because that's what close, most closely mimics human decomp. So I think that it's just there's some similarities in structure and chemical makeup and things. So we are all just swine. Basically, yeah. They've not been able to isolate like what scent trigger the dogs are hitting on. Like that's still very much a, a mystery. They don't know what it is, but they know that if they take a dead body and put it anywhere, lay it on a piece of fabric and then take the fabric to the dogs, the dogs will recognize the smell, but they don't know what smell molecule thing they're recognizing. For example, they did a study in Germany where they took dead bodies and they put dead human bodies and put carpet squares on the dead bodies. And then they took those carpet squares and they put them in stacks of other identical carpet squares. And they took cadaver dogs and said, go find the stinky squares. And the dogs did. And these are not like something that humans could pick out. Like they just kind of put it on the body and then took it off. Right. They went like bloody. Yeah. It wasn't like, and we rubbed it in guts. They did very well, apparently. In a journal dealing with forensic science, studies have been written about the cadaver dogs that cite their accuracy as near perfect. Like one of the most reliable methods of investigation that we have access to as human beings. Yeah, it's amazing. And like it is validated in court, right? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Admissible. Yes. Now, there was some junk science about dogs being able to smell gunshot residue. They would have dog lineups, and, like, if they went and smelled you, you were the guilty party. And that is some hoodoo witchcraft crap. Like, that's... Yeah, but think about it. Like, they can find these dead bodies from... Well, I think if you've been rolling around with a dead body, maybe they could pick it out. But I don't think they can smell gunshot residue on your hands from a week ago. Yeah, but it's not that crazy if you're not, like, a scientist to think that. That shouldn't be an admissible idea in court. No, because it hasn't been proven. But, like, the idea of it is 
a pretty decent idea. Yeah, well, people were convicted on it, and now they're getting out of jail. Okay, maybe that's not so- One of my favorite kind of stories related to cadaver dogs is one that was in National Geographic about Megaloo, and he's a New Zealand dog. He was trained to be an archaeologist. Like Indiana Jones. Yes, he had a little hat. Did he really? No. Oh my god, I totally <laughs> fell for it. With the permission of the Aboriginal people, his owner trained him to be able to smell out Aboriginal remains. Huh. He trained him that way by burying Aboriginal remains and having him try to find it. Then he was able to find like ancient Aboriginal grave sites. Is he cursed? <laughs> Oh, he had permission. Okay, there we go. Good. And in that same vein, they're using cadaver dogs to look through the mounds uh, of the mounds people around the Mississippi Delta, right. you know, down around where we're from, and they're finding bones from way long time ago. Oh, right, because Poverty Point is there, which is a UN cultural heritage site and one of the oldest archaeological civilization sites ever found in the Americas. And so cadaver dogs are being used there to help pinpoint and find uh, human remains. One last fun fact about cadaver dogs. So you can buy, if you're training your dog at home, you can go online and you can buy like bomb scent or you can buy like drug scent or whatever to train your dog. You cannot buy human body scent. Guess you have to make your own. Oh my God, you're a dark and twisted soul. (laughs) Well, no, I think it's really interesting because they're like, oh, that would be the ultimate forensic countermeasure. Oh, right. You could, like, throw a dog off. Yeah. They don't want anybody hiding the body and then misdirecting the investigation. I didn't read that part of it. That's just where my sick, twisted brain went. Like, (laughs) unlike yours, which is like, I guess if you want to train your dog, you got to kill somebody. I'm like, ooh, I could hide all the bodies. (laughs) We'd make a great team. Yeah, we would. That's why we're not allowed to commit any crimes. That's one of the more noble trades that dogs have done police work and they're still doing it today they are still doing it today do you have any other noble professions that dogs have done well so there's one dog and this one is one that fits back into that category where it's kind of lost its job they're not really doing it anymore but it directly ties in with the urban legend that we started off the show with the classic choking doberman story which also has in the 90s and more recently become a choking pit bull interesting a la michael vick you say yes and so pit bulls were bred in a similar fashion to bulldogs to have these big jaws big heads strong stocky bodies to fight bulls Mm -hmm. and then each other but after that was outlawed they found a job as nanny dogs What is a nanny dog? Well, so particularly the Staffordshire Bull Terrier, which is kind of a smaller pit bull. It's like black. It's really cute. And this was in the UK. And, you know, it was called a nanny dog because people would keep them with their kids to keep them safe. A guard dog, specially engineered for children. Well, it was engineered for the other reasons. But they just co-opted it. But then they would, each dog would be individually socialized and trained for the position of nanny. Exactly. Like Nana. Yeah. In Peter Pan. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Because they were fiercely loyal. Okay. But also, if you were to screw with the kids, you were dead. <laughs> yeah. It, it's like, oh, they're so cute and sweet until you mess with little Josephine and then you lose an arm. And I highly suggest you Google nanny dog. And click the images. And click the images because you will see the cutest Victorian images of little kids and their nanny dogs. When a lot of times little dogs have little hats like on Peter Pan. 
it's really quite enjoyable. So, you know, we're talking about its reference to the Choking Doberman story. And Choking Doberman is one of the most classic urban legends. Right. If Jan van Braun has used it as a title for one of his anthologies of urban legends, I consider it to be top tier. Yes. Doesn't always mean I like it, but it's, it's a good one. And so the story goes that a woman returns home to find her Doberman or Pitbull gagging and choking. So she's worried. She brings him to the vet. That's like, okay, we'll take care of this. Go home. We'll give you a call and let you know what's going on. This is before cell phones, people. She gets home and the phone's ringing off the hook. And she picks it up really quickly as the vet. He's going, get out of the house now. I've called the cops. We found fingers in the dog's throat. And there's someone in the house. Okay, that's not where my mind would have gone with it. Like, my mind would not go to warn her. My mind would go to, she's a mad killer. You better have her arrested. But, okay, vet. Good call. Way to read the evidence right. Good job. That's why he's a vet. And you are a crazy crime folklore podcaster. (laughs) We do it. we can. Slash artist. You know, we all have our talents. We all find our walks of life that suit us. But so, of course, the cops come and they find a burglar, like, passed out in one of the rooms, missing the fingers. Bleeding profusely. Yeah. Yeah, Okay. And they're able to reattach them through the miracles of modern medicine. Oh, we don't care about that. Okay. Sorry. And of course, you know, we mentioned the racist stuff. You can throw some racist stuff in here. Sometimes it's like black fingers or Hispanic fingers. Oh, okay, so they know they're not her fingers. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, that's a little racist, yeah. It's often a woman living alone. Mm Mm-hmm. And obviously the moral is kind of that fear of crime in a woman living alone, and it's very... I think the moral of the story is by a big dog. You can say that, too. (laughs) A big dog. Well, sometimes in the story, like the dad gave her the dog because she was living alone. You know, stuff like that. What would Freud say about the dad giving her the dog? I don't know. You tell me, Freud expert. The dad would say, the dog represents the father. So this story really began to spread in 1981. Okay. And like I said, it kind of changed throughout time. Right. Like the, the kind of dog it was or what the intruder was doing or kind of like all urban legends do but that moral was always there but it's interesting if you look into the history of this urban legend it's considered a new urban legend it is a a spontaneous urban legend by some they can't track its origin to something at that time but all folklorists do point out that this is extremely similar to a classic folk tale from wales Whales, like in the UK? No, like like the sea mammal. Oh, sea mammals have folk tales? I'm sure they do. <laughs> Last story. Right, so this Welsh legend is about Prince Lulin and his dog, Gellert. Gellert. It's a good name for a dog. I think so. Okay. So Gellert is Prince Lulin's favorite dog. He's a fearless hunting dog and a companion. Some even say that he was a gift from King John of England. Okay. So it's taking place in like 13th, 14th century. Yeah, we got some Robin Hood stuff going on, things, yeah. And so he goes off to hunt with his dogs and he leaves his baby son there with his nurse and servant. Okay. And the nurse and servant are great caretakers and they go off on a walk. As you do. And as Lulin's hunting, he notices that his favorite dog, Gellert, is not with his hunting pack. Well, that seems like a faux pas on Gellert's part. Right. So he kind of calls out to him. He can't find him. He gets concerned. And he comes back home. Mm-hmm. Calls the hunt off. As he comes home, Gellert runs out to him, greeting his master at the door. Oh. And he's wagging his tail. 
but his muzzle is covered in blood. Oh no, Galart, what did you do? So his wife, who is hunting with him, runs into the house and finds their baby's bed thrown over and lets out a scream. Mm-hmm. And as Prince Lulin sees what happens, he takes his sword out no, and no. kills the dog. No! Okay, I'm sorry, listeners, I didn't know it was coming. Okay. As the dog lets out his dying whimper, they hear the baby cry. From inside the dog. No. Oh, well, I'm sorry, Little Red Riding Hood kind of did that same thing. No. Okay, I didn't know how folktale we were going here. So they pull back the crib, and they find the baby alive and well there, next to a corpse of a large wolf. So Galert had killed the wolf and saved the baby. Yes. Oh my god, that is the most tragic story I've ever heard. It really is. Like, if you're a dog lover, this is the saddest story ever. Oh my god, that's awful. Some of the stories go that, you know, he never spoke again, the prince, because of his grief and sadness. And also, he built a little monument to the dog, and there's actually a town around there that's kind of named after this legend. I mean, with the theme of our show, did that really happen? Maybe. Okay. So it happened so long ago that it's hard to track it down. But this has been written down for centuries and centuries as a tale. You know, the people of Bedgelert, which is the town that's named after the dog, which in Welsh means the grave of Gellert, always claim that, of course, it's real. Yeah. (laughs) Come see his grave. And stop by my establishment and purchase a pint on your way home. You are so right. Because in 1793, a man called David Pritchard came to live in Bedgelert, and he was the landlord of the Royal Goat Inn. Uh-huh. And he heard of this story, and he kind of adapted it to fit the village so that he could use it as a selling point to come and visit his inn. Huxterism at its finest. And so some people think that he even invented the name Gellert for the dog. <laughs> and using Prince Lulin, who was, you know, a real person, as, you know, a anchoring point. As we always mm, talk about. It gives it an air of credibility. Exactly. Yeah. And that he even created the little monument that supposedly Prince Lulin Created built. for the dog. <laughs> okay. Well, I guess people have done worse things, right? Oh, for yeah, like- sure. But it's a sad story. But as I was reading into this, it's actually gotten even older origins. Older than Lulin? Even older than Lulin. Okay. There's an Indian text, the Panzantantra, which is five books of animal fables and magic tales. And this was written down between the 3rd and 5th centuries AD. But the tales are much older than that. They've been around forever and ever. They're old folk tales. And it's considered one of the greatest contributions of ancient India to literature. Okay. Similar to Perot's stories about Bluebeard and all those folk oh, tales. Oh, yeah, right. They it, were written down for fancy people? Yes. Okay. For, <laughs> to teach the royal sons lessons. Okay. So this story in this book is called The Brahmin's Wife and the Mongoose. I, I know that this is not a riddle, but how is a mongoose like a dog? In the story, you have a Brahmin and his wife, and uh-huh. she delivers two children. Obviously. A nice baby boy. Yeah, and a girl. A mongoose. Uh, a mongoose. Yes, a boy and a mongoose. Okay. It's a, it's a story. 
Okay, I just asked if the baby was crying from inside the dog, and you looked at me like I was on crack. So I was trying to stick to reality, but apparently we have departed. All right, so the mongers. So the mother needs to go out and fetch water. Okay. And she tells her husband, the Brahmin, to make sure to watch after the children because she is concerned about the mongoose's just natural, ferocious nature. And so she goes off to get water and Mm -hmm. her husband is also a caring, (laughs) a great caretaker Uh and decides to go off and ask for alms. Oh, good timing. You know, as you were telling me that Galert was killed when the guy got home, I was thinking, where the hell are the the maid servant and the nurse? Like, where are they? They were off walking. I know. Oh, you know what they were doing? They were canoodling. They might have been canoodling, but why the hell? Like, I would have hunted them down <laughs> at that point. No, I agree. But and so- then I'm kind of on the same page with this Brahmin because I figure some something sort of nefarious is about to happen. Right, and so the Brahmin is gone, and the mother returns home with her water. And just as in the other story, the mongoose comes up to his mother, excited and covered in blood. Oh, no. And so she assumes that the mongoose has done exactly what she was worried about and killed her other child. So she assumes he has ricky-ticky-tavied her baby and... Yes. And so she takes the pail and kills him with it. Mother of the year. And whenever she goes to the crib, she finds... Her son, perfectly fine, and a torn up, bloody snake in the bed. And the mongoose had saved her son's life. Right before she beat him to death with a pail. Yeah, pretty much. I enjoy irony as much as the next person, but this is getting a little old. <laughs> and so there is a kind of mid-ground between this story and the story of Gellert. Okay. And that is in the Gesta Romanarium, or the Deeds of the Romans, which was compiled in Latin in the early 14th century by English clerics. And it was first written down in 1473. It's really thought that the Indian text influenced a lot of medieval writers and folklore because it was sent through the Middle East, was translated, and eventually made its way to Europe. And then it was co-opted. Of course, as we okay. always do. Yeah, fun. And so this story, it's very similar to the other ones, but it's Folliculus and his Greyhound, which I know that Folliculus is like a hare, so I don't know if it means like hairy. I don't know. I know. I was going to ask you that. Okay, well, I'm glad, I'm glad that I don't have to anymore. But it's a similar story. He's a knight. He's off knighting. And then some bad caregivers live, leave the baby alone. And the Greyhound. And there's blood, yeah. and then they're dead, and then it's okay. And then everybody's sad again. Exactly. Okay. Got it. So it's really interesting that the Choking Doberman story that we have now has roots in ancient India. Isn't it amazing how long stories can live? Only when they have something to tell us. Don't they always? Well, interestingly, we still really like to talk about dogs who go above and beyond the call of duty and kind of become heroes. We love a hero dog. See, oh, Balto. Sure. <laughs> You can. You can. In Central Park. taxidermy. Oh, no, I meant the statue. God, you're so morbid. (laughs) Don't see taxidermy, Balto. Go to Central Park and visit the statue like a normal person. And see the taxidermy turn spit dog. (laughs) Okay, that was funny, though. (laughs) It looked like it was his first go. I've compiled a little list of some hero dogs, because I feel like that story is a major bummer, and we promised that this would not be such a morbid, terrible episode. Right, this is our happy episode. (laughs) 
right? Happy. We have we have birds chirping. <laughs> the sun is shining. There are dogs barking. <laughs> I hope the dogs barking is in the background of this audio. <laughs> I just I'm gonna leave it there. I really hope it's there. I feel it feels right. Feels right. Okay. So happy episode. Let's all get on board, and we're gonna explore some of the greatest heroes of doggy history. Okay. Okay. Apparently, there are some dogs that have called 911 to save their owners' lives. How do they do that? Okay, well, in a variety of ways. Everything from, like, pushing a life alert button that people had installed, like, people who had health problems to begin with. Right. uh, To some of them had uh, been trained to paw the number in. Really? Yeah, and they barked into the phone. (laughs) Um, Okay, Lassie. It was very, it was Lassie plus tech, and it was great. And then I also found a story that I be- I'm not sure I buy 100%, but I like the story about a Yorkie named Cosette who had dialed 911 on her owner's behalf more than 30 times. Her owner had like a condition where her heart would stop and the dog would like sleep on her chest. And if she felt her the owner's heart stop, she would call 911. The woman went on to like create an Etsy store that made clothes for Yorkies. So I'm like, I see your motive. <laughs> I'm not sure about it. If it's true, I'm sorry. But I tried to verify it and you need to get some more data up online if you would like me to fully support. My favorite of the list of dogs who've made 911 phone calls, which I can't believe there's a list, is Belle. She was a beagle who bit 911 into a cell phone after the diabetic man named Kevin, her owner, collapsed in a seizure. And he said that there's no doubt in my mind I'd be dead now if I didn't have Belle, who became the first canine to win Vita's Wireless Samaritan Award. Evidently, the pooch had been trained to bite down on the phone's keypad in the event of an emergency. That would not work with an iPhone. No. Well, some some of them can push the emergency call button on the iPhone because their paws do. Does it work with the... It works with a cat. I know my cat can do it. Ah. And so I wouldn't think that it's that far off to think a dog can do it, but I'm not sure. But I did see a cat that had used an iPhone. But that was off topic because we're not talking about cats. That's rubbish. Another fabulous dog hero that I, I thought was particularly lovely was Sergeant Stubby. I love Sergeant Stubby. Yes. He's also taxidermied. They all are. I know. So terrible. So he served with the 102nd Infantry Regiment in the trenches of France. During World War One, For 18 months, he participated in four offenses and 17 battles. He was wounded by Germans who were retreating and throwing hand grenades as they went. And he was sent to the rear for convalescence. And he brightened the troops' morale and did all these wonderful things. He was injured by mustard gas, unfortunately. But they didn't want it to happen again. And they wanted him to get to keep going out with the men. So they made him a special doggy gas mask. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> You, you are brightening my day. <laughs> he also learned to warn his units of gas attacks because he could smell it before anybody else. Nice. Yeah. And he would run out into no man's land, like in between the trenches and retrieve soldiers who'd been injured and like drag him back, which he's this tiny little dog. dog. I know. And then he became really adept at like letting them know of incoming airstrikes because he would hear it before anybody else. And he could like sound the alarm and like warn the soldiers and like tell them to duck and cover. It's also reported that he captured an enemy spy. Awesome. So that's awesome. Did you smell the kraut on him? I think he did. It says that here. <laughs> and he was given the rank of sergeant 
But now the army's like, we don't know if he was ever even really in the military. And I'm like, come on. It's such a feel good story. Don't be that guy who is saying, no, we can't let this go to the dogs. Like, I mean, really, who are you? But yeah, he's a Sergeant Stubby to me. Google him. He's fabulous. He's like, he looks like a Boston Terrier or something. Like he's like. I think he was just a mutt. Right? He was. Yeah. But I mean, like that's the closest I can come to describing him. He's got like, little bug eyes and a short muzzle. Mm-hmm. He's, he's very cute. He's quite charming. You always hear stories about modern day military dogs rescuing people in <laughs> the Middle East. And- yeah. And there was, I read one story about a dog who was like a disabled veterans trained service dog and he got stuck uh in the mud in his wheelchair like out in the woods and didn't have a cell phone and like couldn't have gotten in touch with anybody and couldn't have gotten home the dog like pulled the wheelchair out of the mud oh wow like and helped him get to safety and he's like i swear he knew what he was doing definitely of course he did yeah let's see chips he was the most decorated war dog from world war ii he was a german shepherd collie siberian husky mix other words a mutt. Oh, he's the dog that his owner was under machine gun fire and he ran into the pillbox and pulled all the enemy soldiers out of the pillbox one by one and they had to like surrender the men who were firing the machine gun because the dog went so nuts and attacked them. I think the Germans were confused like, hello friend. Yeah. <laughs> and he was like, fuck you, I'm American. Does this A on my head stand for Germany? He received the Distinguished Service Cross, the Silver Star, and a Purple Heart because he was injured during battle. And guess what? They took him away. Yeah, they did. But we don't care. We're still happy it happened. Assholes. I know. Why do they do that? Like, is anybody really sad about this? Where are you? I'm super excited about these awesome dogs, except I am kind of pissed that even though they did these amazing things, at the end, they took their awards away. I know. So give me one more. Give me a happy one where they don't take their awards away. There was a dog mayor. Like, he was a mayor of a town. Well, there is that one. There's Austin also has a dog mayor who is the mayor of dogs in Austin, and his name is Sid. How did they elect him? I believe there may have been some fraudulent voting procedures. I'm not 100% on board with this because I feel like it was probably not a very democratic election process i don't think fritz got his ballot i know i'm just saying i did not see one come through it's like hey man i'll give you some bacon vote for sid i know like i'm not sure how this took place but anyway we supposedly do have a dog mayor in austin which of course we do but there was really actually a dog who was a mayor of a city his name was bosco and they put his name on the ballot as a joke and he got more votes than either of the two humans I could see that happening in some upcoming election. No, yeah, I'm not going to comment. But there's also this one I was really kind of amazed by. There was a dog named Tracker. He was a trained police dog who went into the rubble at Ground Zero on September 11th. And he is credited with pulling the last remaining survivor from the ruins of the World Trade Center. Wow, that's amazing. He and his owner went in and so he was kind of a badass. Because of that, he was cloned. What do you mean he was cloned? I mean, he was cloned. Really? Yeah. That's just a story. No, it's not. He was cloned. I have, I have it on good authority that he was cloned. He was cloned five times. He has five clones named Trust, Solace, Valor, Prodigy, and Deja Vu. So he was the winner of something called the Golden Clone Giveaway, which is much like the Golden Ticket. And as a prize for this, the fee for dog cloning was waived. And they took his DNA and made copies. 
so that these dogs can go on and work with police forces of the future. That's amazing. It really is. It's It's a great award that cannot be taken away by the military. So normally the fee for dog cloning is around $135,000. I will not be cloning Fritz. I know. This was given to his former owner, George Symington. And at the time that Tracker was cloned, he had actually already passed away. And they had preserved his DNA in case this was ever possible. Oh, amazing. So it was possible, and they did it, and now there are five more of him in the world. So after talking about these dog heroes, it's hard to think that anybody would argue that dogs really are a man's best friend. Yeah, I wouldn't say that that's just a story. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 